I'm happy to be on Hot Takedown 2.0. <laughs> We're very happy hotter, to have you. Hotter Takedown. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. If you were a listener of the previous iteration of Hot Takedown, welcome back. And if you're new, we hope you like what you hear. Today is April 23rd, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. Neil is on vacation this week, but I'm joined in the studio by none other than 538 editor-in-chief Nate Silver. Hi, Nate. Hey, are you throwing the earlier edition of Hot Takedown under the bus? <laughs> no, never. Okay. We're just welcoming people back into the fold. You know. Okay, I'm, I'm happy to be on Hot Takedown 2.0. <laughs> we are very happy hotter, to have you. Hotter Takedown. Hotter than ever. <laughs> and on the line from Los Angeles is 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm flattered to have Nate here. This is a big honor. I know. I know. This is a big deal for, for our little podcast. Did you guys, by any chance, watch any of the Bucks pistons game last night? I know. That's what I do on Monday nights because I have a very full life. I just watched this dunk that y'all posted <laughs> in the, uh, not dunk, right? Right. Kind of a, almost dunk that Giannis turned into like a, a playoff. I mean, it was, yeah, he's pretty sweet. I don't like, so he goes up for a dunk on Andre Dump- Drummond. Drummond is there. So he pulls the ball down, puts it in his left hand, puts it back in his right hand and sort of like kind of lays it up while falling down all in midair like he never (laughs) touched the ground until he landed i think he was in air for like 13 seconds i I don't it's like a shot clock violation almost yeah i'm not a physics major but that still seemed uh pretty impressive to me i think they need to raise the raise the rims how about that for a hot take to take down (laughs) too easy for these guys these guys are just too good let's make it harder let's make it difficult (laughs) I like that. Okay, well, on today's show, we will talk about the NBA playoffs. We'll look ahead to the great matchup we're expecting in the second round. We'll dig into this week's NFL draft, and we'll introduce a new segment called Get Off My Field. (laughs) We'll start with the NBA playoffs. Round one is almost in the books, with only one series really in doubt. So we're just going to skip ahead and look at the most exciting matchup of round two, Houston against Golden State. Here's Bill Simmons on the Bill Simmons podcast on Houston's chances. Houston, Golden State right now. Gun to your head, who are you taking? Houston. Me too. I can't believe it, but I really I really think they're going to beat the Warriors. And I got to say, catching them now in round two right after the boogie injury helps them. Nate, our model still likes the Warriors out of the West, but how worried should they be about the Rockets? I mean, very worried. On a scale of Warriors worriness, which, you know, doesn't extend that high necessarily. <laughs> right. So we have Houston as about a, a one in three, 33%. We're not doing – in election models, people are sensitive about probabilities. Right. right. So we have to be like, oh, it's one in three. You know, we're back in sports realm now. Yeah, so I'm people like, understand it in sports somehow. But it's like 32 or 33% or something. But look, our model does not consider matchups per se. It looks at overall team strength. It assumes everything's very linear. And the Rockets are a team that have been allegedly constructed to beat – Golden State that almost beat Golden State last year and maybe would have beat Golden State if Chris Paul had not been hurt. If not for the worst three-point shooting night of all of their lives combined on the Rockets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, pretty hard to watch. And you kind of have two teams that I think are basically the same teams as we saw last year, where Golden State no longer has DeMarcus Cousins. So you have the same kind of depth problems that you had last year. They're your older Houston in the last third of the season 
playing as well as they did last season. Maybe a little bit less depth, but then, you know, kind of ferried some of the acquisitions they made midseason, bolstered that depth a little bit. Chris Paul is playing fairly well. James Harden, if anything, is taking a step forward from last year. They're also a year older, and it's an old team, but like, but there's no particular reason to think that it's a radically different matchup than last year. Golden State does have home court advantage, which they didn't a year ago. But I don't know. I mean, you know, on the other hand, giving the Rockets a 33% chance or thereabouts without home court advantage against the Golden State Warriors, I mean, I don't think it's totally out of line. Maybe it's 35% or 40%. Do we have any sense for what the Vegas line would wind up being? I guess I can't post it yet. You hear some people saying that, like, this is the de facto NBA title. Mm-hmm. I think that may be going a little bit too far because of our friends, the Raptors and the Bucks. Right. But we do say whoever wins the series, or combined, rather, excuse me, combined, the Warriors and Rockets have a 53% chance of winning the NBA title. Wow. 43% of that is Golden State, 10% is Houston. But this is, I think, the most important series of the playoffs, except for the finals. I'll put it like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I think that, that, that makes sense. Do you see Cousins injury is having that much of an effect on this series? Our forecast thought that Cousins was still a pretty good player based on his historical performance. You know, I don't know that it was discounting enough for the fact that when a guy is seriously injured, that kind of what you see is more kind of what you're going to get at least for um, at least for a year or so, right? People are talking in Boston about how Gordon Hayward finally, a year and a half later, almost two seasons worth of basketball later, finally sort of kind of looks like himself. And so so I think it was probably a little optimistic about Cousins to begin with. But look, you you do have a bench that is not terrific, although Kevon Looney is someone actually like the advanced metrics like a fair bit. One big dispute, I think, analytically about the Warriors is, is it a big four or is it a big three or is it a big two? Mm. Um, Clay Thompson is a guy that I think the advanced stats have a hard time with because he is such a particular role on a particular team where you don't need shot creation, you need shooting, and he provides all those things that you know you can do with like medium usage and not high usage because you don't need a high usage player. Draymond Green is clearly no longer a help on offense. He is still a very good defensive player, no, no longer kind of defensive player of the year. But it's a team with, I think of it like this, it's a team with two superstars who are past their peak slightly but still two superstars maybe the league's two best role players if you want to think of it that way Mm -hmm. and then a bench that has one or two components that are are very effective but isn't terribly deep and that adds up to like a very good team a team that in most years would be good enough to win the championship but we do see at least our forecast does it says there are four very good teams this year Mm -hmm. right or at least at full strength and right now we've seen houston be at full strength and milwaukee and Toronto we can talk about later. So it's not like you are talking about gigantic flaws with Golden State. It's just that with, uh, at least in theory, like a a productive Cousins in the lineup is like a turbo booster where they just have so many ways to win. And 48 minutes of the game, they're putting a productive lineup out on the floor where even, you know, even with Steph Curry or Kevin Rand out of the lineup, um, you have two guys who can really score. And now they don't have that as much. So it just means like there's not that turbo booster right 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 uh nate how much of the fatigue factor i mean i know it's obviously something that doesn't show up in the model but there was a lot of talk right when the playoffs you know were the playoff picture was coming into focus that the rockets were trying to get the warriors in the second round rather than the conference finals i mean i know like fatigue is something no one can really measure it's it's not good for us quants um but do you think they have a better chance in the second round than you know, where they met him last year. 
you know, I don't totally buy that in part because I don't know that Houston wanted to play Utah in the first round, even though that series has gone obviously very well so far. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I totally buy that because the theory is, oh, what if Chris Paul gets injured? You'd rather play the Warriors earlier than later. The thing is, if Chris Paul gets injured, you're not going to beat Milwaukee right. or, 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 or Toronto anyway yeah. um, without a lot of luck. I think you'd rather take the off chance that the Warriors... I mean, the problem is I don't know if there's anyone else in the in the West who can really, you know, would the Trailblazers beat the Warriors? Would the would the Nuggets beat the Warriors? I tend to be pretty skeptical. Charles Barkley has the Blazers coming out of the West, so anything's possible, <laughs> I guess. I mean, yeah. But, like, it's, I don't know. I think people forget, like, in some ways, like, all four of these top four teams, not, like, underachieved in the regular season, but we're not talking about a team that went like 67 and 15 or something, right? The Warriors obviously paced themselves a bit. We're dealing off and on with injury issues. The Raptors sat Kawhi Leonard a lot. The Bucks um, had a very good point differential to suggest that they could have won a few more games. And, um, and Giannis, what do you average? Like 32 minutes a game in the regular season, right? So if they have really been pushing it and if they wanted to win 68 games for some reason, they probably could have. And Houston took a while to round into shape between being healthy and the mid-season acquisitions that Daryl Morey made around the margin. But these are all teams that are like are very good and a kind of overachieving plucky team like Portland is probably not going to win in a year like this. This is not the year for for big upset picks. Mm, that makes sense. So elsewhere in the playoffs, unless the Spurs take out the Nuggets, that series is knotted at two games apiece, or something else exciting happens in one of the 3-1 series, all of the higher seeds will move on to the next round. Jeff, does the lack of surprises surprise you? No, it doesn't, because it's like this literally every year. I, I was joking with Sarah <laughs> I was joking with Sarah before the podcast. Why do we even have the first round? I'm, I'm not really <laughs> sure. I mean, it, if you look at it, since 2012, 2012, the Sixers beat the Bulls. The Bulls were a one seed, uh, Rose Tours ACL. The year prior, Memphis beat the Spurs. Since then, there hasn't been a two or a one lose in the first round. There's bare, there's only been three, three seeds lose in the first round. So I'm not really surprised at all. Um, I, I really, if you look at just like the last seven years, the only upsets, which are basically coin flips to begin with, are fives beaten fours, which happens semi-regular. Yeah, and the problem with these like four or five, you know, four or five matchups is that it doesn't really matter because they're probably going to lose the one seed anyway. I mean, I don't know. I would I would think about going to the playoffs with six teams per conference or if you want to merge the conferences, mm-hmm. 12 teams total. The theory being that, number one, that gives you something to play for. Like having a first-round bye, even if you're fairly unlikely to lose a series, you you still do like mitigate the risk of a big upset happening, and you get like an extra week and a half of rest. So if there were a situation where, for some reason, the Houston Rockets wanted to play for the four seed, there would be a big disinducement. I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> I like it. It should be. <laughs> uh, you're a copywriter as well. as like, so you should tell me. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's the word. <laughs> yeah. But also because, like, the I don't know. I mean, apart from, like, having a couple of amazing Giannis highlights, like, I'm not really sure um, that playing out Bucks Pistons is right. accomplishing very much. I'm not really sure that the Pistons wouldn't rather, frankly, have a... 3% chance or whatever of a top 
three pick instead of like losing in four games, getting getting whatever revenue that they get. Right. They're also talking about you could, could have like a, a best of five. You could have a mercy rule where if a team goes up three nothing, you don't have to play um, <laughs> Ooh, the fourth game. That'd be fun. <laughs> but it is like I mean I don't know. Ratings are down in the first round. You don't have LeBron. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure they'll be back up. I think the NBA is in good shape overall. But like. But you kind of have this like weird lull where like we're with these dominant teams who aren't really playing to win, maximize their 82 game record, right? Kind of the last month or so of the NBA season can drag. And then if the opening round drags and all of a sudden like you have this kind of big siesta in the middle of the <laughs> NBA season, which is a, a little odd, I think. Yeah. What about going back to best of five in the first? Because then basically, except for Maybe, one, yeah. wouldn't every round be over right now? Best of five, yeah, that's more compact and more interesting. You have a few more upsets, right? You know, I think best of five, you know, you can combine those two, right? Say um, six teams per conference and best of five series, right? Yeah, that's really interesting because I think the, the, the problem that the NBA has right now is, yeah, these this first round is pretty boring. And also, do you really need to pay attention to the second half of the season? Because you know basically what's going to happen. There's some excitement at the margins of the playoffs, but okay, you get the eight seed. Good luck facing the number one seed. There's not really that much drama there. So that that is sort of do they make a shorter season? Do they shorten the playoffs? It's hard to let go of that revenue, though, obviously. And if you look at the NFL, where they do have Nate's proposed system, which I'm, I'm immediately a big fan of, um, you have these team, these top teams playing, really keeping their foot on the gas until they get that first round by. And, and well, in football's case, they're playing mm-hmm. for home field throughout. But yeah, I do think that if you give that extra, you know, carrot at the end of the season, you'll see, you know, maybe a different effort level in the last few weeks. I'm not super hyped about the short and the regular season aspect of it. I mean, NBA basketball is a sport meant to provide entertainment as all sports do when you want a certain amount of of inventory and i'm not sure if you have a 66 game regular season that like it changes the incentives to care as much about the regular season necessarily you know Mm -hmm. i think one thing you could have is a rule where each player is entitled to um maybe you start with like three rest days so the maximum any individual player can play is 79 games but it's an 82 game season oh that's interesting yeah i kind of like that idea i mean they're gonna rest the stars anyway that yeah that's interesting there's a lot of ways that that the nba could improve i think it's a you're right it's a great product they're doing fine obviously but there are things they could do to to liven it up a little bit well as long as uh the rockets and warriors take care of business in their first round we'll see them in the second round could be the best series of the playoffs it'll be exciting to see Let's leave it there and move on. But before we do, a word from one of this week's sponsors, 1-800-Flowers. For all your biggest achievements in life, who's one person that's always been there, unconditionally supporting you every step of the way? This Mother's Day, show your mom or whoever your biggest cheerleader is just how much you appreciate the love with 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, 1-800-Flowers will give you an exclusive 36 for 36 offer. That's 36 sorbet roses for just $36, only $1 per rose. With an impressive mix of pastel shades in pink, orange, and lavender, these roses are guaranteed to make your special someone smile. Roses are the perfect way to surprise someone or to celebrate any spring occasion. These breathtaking roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness. 
36 Sorbet Roses for $36 is an amazing offer, but you have to hurry. It expires Friday. Don't put this off. Order today from 1-800-Flowers.com. To order 36 Sorbet Roses for $36, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter code TAKEDOWN. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, code TAKEDOWN. Hurry, this fantastic offer ends Friday. Let's move on to the NFL draft, which is this week. The first round is Thursday night on ABC. Oklahoma quarterback Kyler Murray is expected to be the first name taken, though it's possible that Arizona could pass on Murray and take a defender instead. Here's Aaron Taylor on Inside College Football on CBS Sports with a bit of a doomsday scenario for Murray. If Arizona doesn't take Murray, I project he could possibly fall all the way out of the first round. Jeff, is there any universe in which Kyler Murray falls to the second round of the NFL draft? No. Uh, No, definitely (laughs) not. I I actually think... You know, it is interesting. I'm not a hundred percent convinced that he goes one overall. I think, yeah. you know, if you look at what Arizona needs and the fact that they, you know, traded to get the 10th pick where they got Josh Rosen last year and to just immediately turn around and take another first round and uh, first pick overall quarterback is, does not seem like a good use of resources. So I think you could make an argument that they'll pass on him. But if you just look down at the first round, I mean, the Raiders at four, obviously I think the Raiders need a new quarterback, despite how much they're paying Carr. You got the giants at six. Obviously they need a quarterback. You got the Bengals at 11 with Andy Dalton. I don't really know if he's the, you know, in the five-year plan. Um, you have the dolphins at 13, the Redskins at fifth. There's a teams that need quarterbacks. Um, so, it's the idea that they would all pass on him, a guy who, you know, has just put up tremendous numbers in college and plays the type of game, plays the position the way, um, you know, the league as a whole is sort of going. You look at the success Deshaun Watson has had, Patrick Mahomes has had, uh, Russell Wilson, who is, you know, very comparable, I think, to, to Murray. It, it would be, I, I he would have to have some sort of, he would have to get like arrested the night before the draft or something like that for that to happen. I mean, I, you know, I never, uh, am much of an NFL draft guy. What I, what I do know, I'll do like the kind of unfrozen caveman lawyer thing to date myself a bit, right? But like, you know, what I do know is that Kyler Murray is a very good quarterback prospect. The value of good quarterback prospects far outweighs the way the NFL is played today. Any other position. And therefore, if you're Arizona and you have a current quarterback you like, then what you do is you either trade that quarterback or you trade the number one pick mm-hmm. um, to maximize value. And like it should, you shouldn't overthink it, right? You know, there are lots of teams in the NFL. The Giants are a good example. The Giants, who passed an opportunity to take a quarterback last year, need someone who is not Eli Manning to be the future arm of that franchise. And like, and there's someone who you actually see linked with potentially moving up and and. I don't think the Giants are very well managed, so I'm not sure if they're necessarily going to trade the right um, commodities to Arizona to make for a fair value move. But like, but that's that's the right play, I think. You know, if you have if you have a prospect who does not rate as well statistically as Kyler Murray, or is kind of not in the template of how quarterbacks are evolving now, then it might be a little bit different. But like, but this is not that hard a call, I don't think. I think it's also a a, a factor of you know a new coach um, who obviously you know played a kind of the air raid 
crazy college offense, which he's going to try to bring to the NFL. I mean, that's a whole different story whether Cliff Kingsbury is going to be successful because he was hardly even successful as a college coach. Um, but he obviously put together some really good offenses. Um, so to me, he needs the quarterback he wants. I mean, if he's trying to, you know, put a square peg in a round hole with his quarterback and his offense and it that is definitely going to fail i mean it still might fail because there's a lot mm-hmm. you know as important as the position is there's other factors at play here too i mean and they you got to protect that quarterback you got to surround that quarterback with talented players and you have to stop the opposing quarterback that's basically football i don't know if arizona can do really any of those things or they have all those parts but certainly you know if the kingsbury era is going to work. I mean, he needs to have the quarterback he wants. So that that's an argument also to trading Rosen, even though you can't be too excited about how the last couple drafts on played out, played out for them. Right. But you also can't replay the last draft. You have to look forward to the Giants GM, Dave Gettleman, who is getting a fair amount of criticism for his draft strategies, said something interesting to ESPN.com. You can't draft for need. You'll get screwed every time. You'll make a mistake. I found that really interesting because it's sort of like take the talent. It's a it's good advice to Arizona. Take the talent that that you see there. Don't let probably the best player in the draft go. On the other hand, if you need a quarterback like the Giants seem to do, maybe maybe draft one because you do need it and try to get good talent there. So I, you can sort of play that both ways a little bit. And I think. I think if you have a quarterback that's not working, I mean, I don't think, look, first of all, Josh Rosen, I don't think was put, was kind of put in a position to fail, um, with what was going on with that team last year. So I don't even think we know how good he is, but I do think a mistake you see all over and over in this league is a team trying to, you know, stick by their first round pick for like three or four years. You know, you look at Ryan Tannenhill, they, you know, gave him a contract trying to make it work because they invested all that capital on it. And I do think you have to make a decision early. Like, this isn't going to work. Let's try something else. As as painful as that is to take quarterbacks and back-to-back. As 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 similar as we are to the Browns by taking a quarterback every year, we're going to have to do that anyway. I mean, there's lots of precedent for quarterbacks having a bad rookie season and then turning it around. After two years, it becomes a much more interesting debate. After three years, I think you're probably – being stubborn if you think that a guy's going to turn into a star at least but it's the toughest position in sports to use cliches that you would ordinarily <laughs> critique but the whole point is like if you want to keep rosen then it's incumbent on you to find an efficient trade mm-hmm. right that gives you uh more value than bosa or whatever or lets you pick him in something else. i mean you know you have 32 teams you should have a fairly efficient market where you can kind of have your cake and eat it too a little bit if he's not your number one there ought to be ways to kind of get your real number one and get like a pick next year or a second round pick or like a decent defensive end or something that coming in coming to you in trade or something right it, it shouldn't be that hard yeah absolutely well it's very possible that murray will be the only quarterback taken in the top 10 this draft is very heavy on defensive prospects which sometimes aren't as sexy because we don't necessarily follow them as much out of college um jeff who are the favorites to be taken early of that defensive class yeah it's really just a a, a whole onslaught of um pass rushers i mean if like if you look Mm -hmm. at most mock drafts i think like 
up to seven of the top 10 picks will be guys who get after the quarterback or in theory get after the quarterback. You know, guys like Ed Oliver, Ed Oliver and Houston, Josh Allen, Kentucky. And it, it's really big, athletic, speedy um, passer. I mean, really, everyone's trying to get the next Khalil Mack. Um, mm-hmm. And even the Raiders are going to probably end up drafting the next Khalil Mack which makes the argument that they probably should have just held on to actual Khalil Mack. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's not a good, it's not a yeah. great quarterback draft. I mean, for sure. I mean, th- that's part of the reason I think Murray's value is surging. You know, you look at Haskins in Ohio State, Locke in, at, out of Missouri. That's about it. Those guys are borderline first round picks, probably second round quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's not, I mean, last year was the year with all the quarterbacks. That's why the, if you're a Giants fan and you're frustrated and you need a quarterback, you had a chance to take Sam Darnold. There was a lot of guys, you know, you could have taken. That was the draft. Um, and th- th- we've seen this in the NFL draft. It's like, well, you know, there are big quarterback years and then, uh, you know, a lot of the best quarterbacks in the league were freshmen last year in the league in the country. Um, so, you know, in a couple of years, we'll have another one of these big quarterback drafts, but not this year. Yeah. By that time, Saquon Barkley will be out of the league because he had been run on every single play that the Giants are on the field this year. Yeah. Whoops. Okay. Well, it does still seem more likely than not that Kyler Murray will be drafted number one overall. We'll know soon enough. Tune in Thursday night. Okay, let's move on. But first, a word from this week's other sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers. So LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and looking for. That means that when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than a resume. Your LinkedIn Jobs matches are based on skills and background, sure, but also interests, activities, and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates for your role. That way you can focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about. Customers rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash pain. That's P-A-I-N-E. Neil isn't here today, but we're still using his last name. And get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash pain. P-A-I-N-E. Terms and conditions apply. Let's move on to a new segment here at Hot Takedown. Every once in a while, we want to slip in a take of our own in the style of a get-off-our-lawn kind of rant. This week, we invite Nate to explain why something in sports is wrong in a segment we're calling Get Off My Field. Nate, take it away. There are too many damned home runs and strikeouts in Major League Baseball, (laughs) and it's ruining the game. (laughs) (laughs) What a take. <laughs> home runs this year are up to 1.34 home runs uh, per team per game. Quite a bit more than 2017, the previous record holder of 1.26 home runs a game. And remember, although the weather has been nice in some parts of the country, it is April. April is usually the worst month of the season for offense. That number is probably as likely to, to rise as anything else. 
The number of strikeouts is up to 8.87 per team per game. That's far more than the number of hits, which is 8.27. It means that the hallmark of a great strikeout pitcher is once the strikeout in an inning that's now league average pretty much. <laughs> Batting average is down to 245. That would be the lowest since, let me look here, since 1972 when it was 244. Um, that has ticked up a bit. That might improve a little bit with the offense, but still. Um, but you're going longer and longer between balls in play. You have guys with their launch, the, all this launch angle analytics stuff is leading to an excess of home runs. But no, I mean, Kirk Goldsberry, who is a ESPN and 538 contributor, has a new book out called Sprawl Ball, Sprawl Ball about the NBA. That's a mouthful. Where he talks about like what happens when the NBA moves beyond a point where there aren't different skill sets that can be rewarded, right? Where Kevin Love doing kind of Kevin Love power forward things or Rudy Gobert doing kind of Rudy Gobert center things can't play because the game is only a certain way, right? And that's why I wonder a little bit in baseball now, where is there only one way to play? We have to be kind of a three true outcomes pitcher or hitter. You don't see as much variety anymore in the type of players that you see. You know, if you have more strikeouts, it actually de-emphasizes the importance of of defense, if you have more home runs, that de-emphasize the importance of base running, you know, and you also see some effect on attendance. So, so far this year, I believe 20 teams are drawing, um, excuse me, 10 teams are drawing 20,000 people a game or fewer. Mm. It's time for baseball to do something about it um, after this season. So, so home runs, more home runs are bad for the game. So fans don't want to see more home runs. Isn't that sort of like saying in the NBA dunks? I mean, now dunks are... I'm more concerned with like do. the lack of base hits and, and doubles and triples. The excess of, you know, walks are up this year or something, too. So 3.48 mm. walks per game, which is the most since 2000. You know, I don't think fans mind the home runs as much. Although one thing is like, again, it would be more fun if you had some guys hitting 63 home runs or whatever, right? And chasing down Bonds and McGuire mm-hmm. um, and Roger Maris and whatnot, right? But you largely don't see that. Instead, what mm-hmm. you see is like a lineup where nine guys will all hit 20 home runs. Right. It's not like you have different styles of play that like are, are excelling. You know, you have Jose Altuve and a few players, but like it's it's time to it's time to knit this problem in the bud, I think. I, you know, I'm a little torn because I, I, I generally agree that this the, the the way it's the game is heading to, is a problematic, but I I do still think home runs are exciting. I mean, like I don't think home runs have lost. You know, you know, when I was a kid going to the ballpark, that, I was basically just sitting there waiting for someone to hit a home run, and you know, I was a Met fan, so they never did in the early nineties, and I would often go, you know, whole you know, months I was going every week and uh, without seeing one. But um, it, it was the most thrilling part of the game. I still think it is. I mean, you look at the history of baseball, you know, most of the great moments, Bobby Thompson, Joe Carter centers around the home run. I don't think that's necessarily gone. Um, but the strikeouts, to me, they just, you know, it used to be a pride thing. Guys would be embarrassed when they struck out. They didn't want to, you know, have that sh- you know, they would shorten their swing they, uh, with two strikes to avoid it. And then, you know, Adam Dunn and that sort of style player comes along and strikes out more than 200 times a season and uh, it's fine. And everyone else is like, oh, okay, so let's just all strike out 200 times a season and swing for the fences with two strikes. Um, so I don't know how you can, like, you know, unring that bell. And and it, make strikeouts this go ahead. Yeah. No, I think it's kind of tough because 
the players sort of did what stat people like us told them <laughs> to do, like hit more home runs, walk more, get on base, and pitchers stop screwing around with making contact, just strike them out, right? So they sort of listened to us and so did we ruin Well, the look, game? I you know, maybe. <laughs> Although I think we've made what I'm saying with we, right? I think right. The push for analytics has made basketball more interesting, and you can talk about if it's going too far now, right? But the like floor spacing, and like I think basketball's in great shape now. I think um, analytics makes football more interesting because, let's be honest, like the running game is really boring. Right. And passing and going for it on fourth down and not kicking as many damn field goals and punts, right? All that stuff is good. But baseball, I don't know, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not sure it's entirely analytics either. I mean, I think I'm sure that's part of it, but it's a competitive market, and they tend to evolve in the direction of kind of efficiency given constraints and you also have guys who are getting like bigger and stronger in ballparks of the same size right you have a ball that a lot of people think whether it's juice per se or not the specifications of how it's manufactured cause more velocity off the bat and, and less air resistance and i don't know all the physics of it right but like but so to me it's like this is a solvable problem and solutions involve changing how the baseball is manufactured so ball's a little deader mm-hmm. it probably means moving back the mound by mm. some amount. Would you ban shifts? No. no. Shifts are a normal part of the game, I think, right? And, and based on our research, you know, Travis has written on this, it's not clear that shifts are working that much, although shifts are like maybe having a perverse effect where guys are trying to hit it over the shift, right? right. Yeah. Um, but like to me, that's like kind of a more natural kind of competitive evolution. One nice thing about baseball is the pr- positions are not prescribed, right? They're fluid, and like the shifts to me are an interesting evolution. Although shifts are ruining my scorebook. Like it's yeah, very, it can be hard. Yeah, mm-hmm. who did that go to? It went to the shortstop. He was way over there. <laughs> and it can make some types of defensive metrics harder to, to evaluate. Tinkering with the baseball and the mound, right, um, will do a lot. You know, I also wrote an article earlier this year about how I think teams should be limited in how many pitchers they can carry on the roster. All these guys who come in for one inning are, are kind of striking out huge numbers of batters. It's not that hard to pitch for one inning at a time every second or third day. There should be an incentive to discourage that. You know, I have come not to like it when um, when teams like the Mets move their fences in, right? Mm-hmm. I like the variety of different different wall heights and dimensions that we have in baseball, different playing conditions. I think Major League should say, okay, you can pick whatever you want. You can have a hitter's park, hitter's park or pitcher's park or whatever else, right? But we don't want you tinkering um, with these dimensions willy-nilly, right? right? Maybe once every 10 years you're allowed to subject to like approval of the commission or competitive or competition, excuse me, competition committee or something like that, right? But like the Giants who are considering, who have one of the um, most distinctive parks in baseball, maybe the most distinctive in terms of dimensions, are now thinking about moving in their gigantic right center field to something which is more in line with other parks. I mean, you know, that's kind of boring. I, yeah. I like I like triples. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but yeah, I think I think it's time for baseball to like put the serious solutions on the table to, um, you know, I guess they're experimenting the Atlantic League this year with moving the mound back potentially, but to kind of acknowledge that like we actually do have some degree over how the ball is manufactured, right? right. And we're in the 21st century, right? We can anticipate how much these changes in manufacturing specifications will affect how far the ball travels and how much air resistance there is and whatever else, right? Yeah, the strikeouts are just going to get worse and worse. Nate, uh, by your logic, that means you are you were a fan of the hill in center field and the Astros park. W- would you be in favor put of that, putting put that, that back? Put that back in there. I want weird design. crap, right? I want like weird like uh, – you know, I want hills. hills. I want I want things where you can hit triples is what I want, right? Or inside the park home runs. 
All right, Rob Manfred, give Nate a call. Why don't they build a new stadium like the Polo Grounds with this 500, 600 to dead center? Go with that, right? Go with that. Build Polo Grounds 2.0, guys. (laughs) Love it. All right. I think that'll do it for this week's show. Thank you guys so much. Nate, thanks for joining us. It was great to have you. You can come back back and rant about what's wrong in sports anytime you want. Believe me, I will. (laughs) This is a new podcast, so if you like what you hear, please subscribe. Be sure to review and rate the show. It does help others discover the program. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Nate and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.